Well, good morning. Merry Christmas and happy Boxing Day for those of you who are watching either in Canada or the UK or in parts where the British Crown still has some say about things. But it's good to see everyone this morning, especially uh, those of us who can't join us here in person. We pray that the Lord would uh, soon uh, return you to good health and that we can worship together. Why don't you join me right now before I read the, the scripture and then uh, move on into the message for this morning. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are very thankful for the birth of our Savior. We thank you for songs, Father, that arise out of this glorious event, songs which are inspired not only by the birth of Christ, but songs which are rooted and grounded in your word. The truth, O Lord God, of what was prophesied from the very beginning, that uh, even in the garden, after Adam and Eve rebelled, it was your plan, Father, to send one who would crush the head of the serpent, though his own heel would be bruised. We thank you, Father, that that plan has come to fruition, that we, by virtue of your grace, are the recipients of it. And even more so by your grace, we are the communicators of it as well. Remind us, O Lord God, that the light has come to make us the light as well, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That as uh, the Lord told his uh, disciples, that you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and that it is our responsibility now, under the, the authority given to us by Christ, uh, to proclaim this wonderful news that the Savior is born, the Savior is here, the Savior lives, and because the Savior lives, we also can live. And so we pray, Lord God, that the, the power that flows from the cross, the power that flows from the resurrection of Christ, the power that flows from your Holy Spirit, would empower us, Lord, to serve you, to worship you, to heal those who are uh, suffering and have uh, tested positive for COVID. We pray, Lord God, for healing and for strength and for recovery. We pray as well, Lord God, for your continued blessing upon the ministry of Maranatha Church. We ask, O oh Lord God, that as we continue to seek your guidance and your leadership, your wisdom and insight, that we would indeed be people of the book, people of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our lives would give ample testimony to the, the transforming power of this marvelous God-man who indeed humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of a cross, that we might also humble ourselves in serving others in his name. We thank you, Father, for all these things and pray now your blessing upon uh, this message, upon our hearts. Help us, O Lord God, to understand and to apply it. And help me, O Father, to preach it with clarity that it might be understood and that we might, O Lord God, give you glory through its application. Father, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have come through the season of Advent. Now we're in the, the season of, of Christmas tide, and, but it's still keeping with that mode. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 9. Normally, this is a, a text that is read at the beginning of Advent or during Advent itself, but um, I'm going to sort of change things up and just read it the day after Christmas. This prophecy that Isaiah gives here, as you'll no doubt 
recognize, indeed points to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It may not have ever occurred to you, and it didn't occur to me until several years ago, in thinking about the timing of the year that we celebrate Christmas. It always, it just occurs to me that we who live here in the the northern hemisphere, we celebrate Christmas when the days are short and the nights are even longer. And I think this paradox is both helpful and purposeful, because as the northern half of our planet is tilted away from the sun. It only seems to magnify the significance of Jesus being born as the light of the world. That just when the days are shortest, especially in this current season, this ongoing pandemic in which we now live, when the days are longest, uh, days are short, the nights are longest, our hearts uh, heavy laden, our souls are just saturated with fatigue, our minds overwhelmed, Hear the words of Isaiah as God's cure for a kind of spiritual form of seasonal affective disorder syndrome, SADS. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now, the the Bible uses darkness as a metaphor for sin. And like darkness, sin thickens the gloom of anguish. Thankfully, Christmas celebrates the good news that this darkness will not last forever. Nor will sin have the last word. Because Isaiah sees a day coming when there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. A day is coming when the light of God's glory will disperse the gloomy clouds of night and chase away the the darkness and make a complete end to the anguish that is created by sin. We know that the event that Isaiah saw happening 700 years beyond his own time is the day that we celebrate every December the 25th. 
To us a child is born, to us a son is given. This child, we know, is Jesus. That he was born at night is also no accident. Because the son who is given is in fact the light of the world. And as the Apostle John tells us in the prologue of his gospel, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Every Christmas we celebrate this profound and eternal reality. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, he is the light. And he shines in the darkness, and he will keep shining until the darkness is finally and fully overcome. Now, were this a series on the book of Isaiah, I would walk us through every verse in the text that I've chosen this morning. We would go over and and we would learn why Zebulun and Naphtali are honored by seeing the light dawn, because as the two northernmost tribes who fell first to the kingdom of Assyria, they were the ones who experienced the gloom of anguish the longest of all the tribes of Israel. We would examine why the gloom of anguish lingered over them, and why the rejoicing, as in the day of Midian's defeat, Hearkening back to Gideon's defeat of the Midians with just 300 men. We would examine why the, the, foot, the, the, the trampling boot and the, the sword and shield would be used for fire. We would do all of that, but we're not preaching through Isaiah. This is a message in a series of messages dealing with the birth of Christ. And so with that in mind, I'm going to just focus on verses 6 and 7. Because these two verses describe for us not only the the names, the titles, descriptive of Christ's character, but the very essence of his ministry, his mission, and indeed the very content of our hope as we trust in him in the present and then for our future. That these verses which ring out in a familiar way and ought to bring us comfort as we hear them, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, says the prophet. Now in last week's sermon, Matthew 1, 18-25, there we learn that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he told Joseph that the, the child that Mary would bear, that she would bear him a son, and that he would call this child Emmanuel, he would call this child Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. We also learn in reading that text from Matthew 1, that all of this took place in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Isaiah, when in Isaiah 7.14, the prophet said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And right away, we have to make a distinction and an understanding. Because when Isaiah delivered that prophecy 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah says, the virgin shall conceive and she shall call his name Emmanuel. 
So why did Matthew change she to they? In his commentary on Matthew, D.A. Carson makes the point that Matthew makes that change from the virgin calling the child Emmanuel to the people calling the child Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because from the people's perspective, that's exactly who Jesus is. From the people who he saves from his, their sins, Jesus is God with them. Because only God can save us from our sins. Only God can redeem us from our rebellion. Only God can deliver us from the darkness that so shrouds our mind, our soul, and our heart that we cannot see, think, or even feel our way to him. And so they shall call him God with us because that is exactly who Jesus is. God in human flesh come to deliver us from this present darkness and the future darkness with the light of his glorious truth, grace, mercy, and love. And moreover, because Jesus is God with us, the Bible describes beautifully and marvelously for us this ministry that he has as God who, who enters into our time but also enters into our emotions enters into the sense of, of loneliness, isolation, and despair that we can often feel, especially in a time of pandemic when so many of us have been separated for a great length of time from family and loved ones. And even though we've been able to close that distance, there is still this sense of trepidation and fear and anxiety. Well, Jesus would have experienced that as God with us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us so in Hebrews 5, 7. The writer tells us that in the days of his flesh, that in the days that he lived on earth, in other words, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence or his fear of God. What does this mean? What is this? How does this help us? It helps us in this manner. That when we offer up our prayers, when we offer up our supplications with loud cries, with fears, to the God who is able to save us from death, it means we will be heard and we will be answered. Because God heard Christ's prayers and he answered Christ's prayers. We are heard because Christ was heard. That as God with us, Jesus experienced the full range of our emotions, our human experience. And he did so in order to save us completely from our sins. That he felt pain, isolation, grief. Isaiah himself, in Isaiah 53, describes Jesus as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces. He was treated as an outcast that we might be welcomed as brothers and sisters and children of the living God. He tasted joy and happiness and laughter and fellowship. He enjoyed the, the delightful silliness of children. He wrestled, as I said last week, with the complex dynamics of family relationships. Remember, his mother and his brothers thought he had lost his mind. His brothers mocked and teased him about going up to the feast and you know, fulfilling his destiny. And Jesus demurred and said, now is not the time to do that. He's able also to sympathize with our weaknesses, both physically and mentally and emotionally and even spiritually. 
He knows what it is to walk with a limp, to pray with a catch in your throat. When there are no words, the words just won't come. And the only thing that does emerge from us is just a tear, a gasp, or a heavy sigh. He knows that. But he came to do more than just identify with us in our humanity. He came to rule. And he came to reign as king. King of kings and lord of lords. That's what it means when Isaiah says the government will be on his shoulder. He bears, as he says, as Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He bears that government on his shoulders. He carries the weight of it because he is worthy to carry the weight of it. And he does so with integrity, with truthfulness, with faithfulness. And like Emmanuel, the names that, is given, that are given to Jesus, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, they all flow out of the experience that he bears for us as the one who will fulfill all of God's demands. And so that these names describe how we perceive him. It's the... Uh, I'm trying to think in terms of how to make this connection. I've been working with this all week, and it's like from another generation, those of us remember, uh, first he was Cassius Clay, then he became Muhammad Ali. But if you were to say the greatest, you would think Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer. He was, he was the greatest. He was the Louisville mouth. Or you would think of, uh, if I say now, the king. Some of you think Elvis Presley. Some of you think LeBron James. Right? So those nicknames describe who he is. If you're from New England, if you say the goat, you go to Tom Brady. New York Giants fans would say, well, maybe not. But anyway, you get the point. From our perception, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace. Because he is these things in his nature, and he demonstrates them by the things that he does. So he is the Savior whose names described us. So remember, the, the, if you're gonna, we're going to move into these names now, and just bear in mind that the theme then is that Jesus is the light who shines in the darkness and will continue to shine until the darkness is eventually and finally and ultimately overcome. So Jesus is the light who shines in the darkness until the darkness is ultimately overcome. That's the theme we're working on. And as the light, Jesus shines as a wonderful counselor. Or literally a counselor of wonders. And here we've sort of got make apologies to you know, Handel and his Messiah. It's not two names. It's not wonderful counselor, although that makes for a wonderful chorus. It's one name, wonderful counselor. He is a wonder of a counselor because, by virtue of his, the miraculous character of his birth. He's virgin born. He has no human father. Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and she conceives. He is fully God and fully man. He is the wisdom of God come down in, in human form. He's a wonder of a counselor because to borrow words from the Apostle Paul from Colossians 2.3, Jesus Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's a wonder of a counselor because... When you read the Gospels, 
and you read about Jesus' encounter with people, Jesus knows exactly where to aim his words at the human heart to achieve its maximum impact. Think of his conversation at the woman at the well when she asks him about drawing water from this well. And Jesus tells her, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. And then she changes the subject. But then Jesus begins to further narrow in on her life. When Jesus talks to the woman caught in adultery in John 7, and he asks her, where are your accusers? They've all left. He says, go and sin no more. When Jesus looks at Peter at the end of John's gospel, after he has prepared a breakfast for these hardworking fishermen who really are to be apostles now and be fishers of men at the end of John's gospel, when they've eaten and have been satisfied, it's then that Jesus looks at Peter, looks at the fish in front of them, looks at the men there and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Jesus knows exactly the words to use and where to aim those words in such a way as to achieve its maximum effect in terms of turning our heart more closely toward him and away from the darkness and more toward the light. That's why we read the scriptures. That's why we encounter them and study. That's why we dive into them so that we might, through this encounter with the living word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to pierce even between the division between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, Christ's words penetrate in a way that as a wonderful counselor, he knows us. Why? Because he formed us. He created us in our mother's womb. He knows the DNA of our personality. He knows how we think. He knows what makes us tick. He knows everything we have experienced. We know this because the prophet tells us as well. Isaiah in Isaiah 11 says, Jesus possesses the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit who provides the ability to execute plans, and the spirit who produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. Why are we drawn to Jesus? Because he always tells us the truth. All of those qualities that we want in another person, those qualities we want in ourselves, truthfulness, faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity, honesty, integrity, a sterling character, Jesus possesses and transfers and imputes to us by his grace. He is the great high priest. He's the good shepherd who knows his sheep. He calls them by name. He prays for his sheep. He protects them always. And he is patient. As a counselor, he is wonderfully patient. I remember years ago, we lived in Canada, and I was going through just, just a really awful time. And I would walk our dog, and for 45 minutes, it was like God and Job living there in Richtown, Ontario. And I would just, I would throw at God every accusation I could think in terms of how unfair I believed he was treating me and my family. 
And at the end of 45 minutes, when I had spent all of my tantrum, God would just, at the end of that, as if he would, didn't hear an audible voice, it was just this silence in my heart, and it was just like this little voice to say, you done? Yeah. Let's talk. He's patient. He allows us to spew whatever bile is within our soul and spirit. It lays out there, and he says, let's, let's clean this up now. Let's, let's move forward from this. He's willing to wait until we're finished with those tantrums and ready to listen to him. I always think about, it was, I think it's, uh, the, the, whoever, the, I can't remember the, his last name, the, the dog whisperer. Right? He always says a tired dog, a weary dog is a trainable dog. And I think there are times when God has allowed me to become physically and emotionally exhausted. And then he says, now we can begin. Now we can learn. Now we can teach. Now you can apply. And sometimes that's what it takes. God brings you to that point. Oswald Chambers would always talk about God bringing us to the end of ourselves, to the end of our rope, to the end of our own effort. And then he says, now, let's work. I'm always comforted when I think about that. Isaiah 42.3, Isaiah 42.3, in describing Jesus as a servant of the Lord, says, behold my servant. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering or a smoking wick he will not extinguish. What does it mean? A broken reed. I remember as a kid, you know, walking through the woods, you find a broken twig and you, you just snap it off. Jesus comes and he straightens it. And he, he heals, he puts a wrap around it, he makes sure that it can grow, so that it can, it can bear whatever is coming up from the roots, the nutrients, and it can produce fruit. A smoldering wick, he doesn't thumb it out, he gently fans it into flame with the word of his truth. And so there are times when we are bruised. There are times when we are smoldering. There are times that we think it's all over. It's done. Whatever this faith has led me to, I'm going to quit it. And then Jesus comes and he says, not yet. Not yet. When Jesus comes, he comes to heal and he comes to heal with the word. The truth sometimes will hurt, but it will always set us free. And even when the truth hurts, the counsel of Jesus is gentle. Remember, bruised reed, he doesn't break. Smoldering wick, he fans back into flame. And everything he says as counselor is trustworthy. I always think of that line from the Princess Bride, where Wesley, who is in the Red Pirate Roberts tells Princess Buttercup, life is pain, princess. Anyone who tells you differently is selling something. Jesus isn't selling anything. He's giving us everything we need in order to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. He's giving us himself, the truth, the way, and the life. So in a world that's filled with people who are always trying to sell us something, sell us an image, buy this and you will have that, Jesus doesn't sell us anything. He freely gives us himself, who is solid, true, eternal. He gives us wisdom, wisdom incarnate. 
His words carry weight. And so why buy what others are selling when Jesus will freely give us the truth? Because he is the truth. He is a wonder of a counselor. But then he is also a mighty God, says Isaiah. As a mighty God, Jesus is this hero who is faithful and true. And anybody who has watched any of the Marvel iterations knows how we long for heroes. But the heroes in those films, as in other films, whether it's in Greek tragedies or in Shakespearean plays, all human heroes at some point demonstrate that they have feet of clay, that they are fallible, that they are given to pettiness and to anger and to envy, and at times out-and-out stupidity. But Jesus, we're told, is the one whose eyes are flame of fire, hair as white as snow, whose feet are like burnished bronze. In other words, he is the real deal. He is a hero in whom we can put our trust. Many of us are wrestling with some of our, our heroes after the fact, after they have dead, and things come out, we think, oh, they thought that, they believe that, and we wrestle with that. But nothing of the sort will ever be discovered about Jesus. His specialty is the salvation of souls as the mighty God. He is our shield. He is our defender. Psalm 46, 1 describes him as our refuge and strength. I love Psalm 23, 4, where it talks about the fact we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they cover me. And he is leading us through the valley. And that valley is part of the paths of righteousness for his name's sake in which he leads us. And he's trod that path. He has borne that evil. He has carried that death. And he has carried death away and he has defeated it. Although he was in the form of God, we read it from Philippians 2. He voluntarily humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. They didn't think equality with God was something to be exploited, something to be grasped, something to be held on to. But he became flesh, blood, and bone. And as such, he made atonement for sin. And by his resurrection, he conquered the grave and he defeated death. That's the kind of mighty God we want. It's, it's what C.S. Lewis would talk about as the, the grand, if you will, the, the ultimate myth. Because every heroic story that we are drawn to has this crisis moment in which someone is called to fulfill a particular destiny. And we are drawn to that kind of character. We are drawn to that kind of story because we want to be that person. We want to be the hero. And we can't. Because there's only one who is faithful and true. There's only one who is mighty God, and that is Christ. And he battled every temptation we experience. He lived, as Pastor Justin told us at the beginning of our service this morning, he lived a sinless life we cannot live. And although he was tempted in every way, just as we are, he did not sin. That's how he also is mighty God. And so his victory over sin and death means... What does it mean for us? It means that we can go to God and we can approach him with confidence. So as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, we can then receive mercy and find grace whenever we need it. 
And we need grace all the time. I know I do. As a mighty God, something else to consider is this. Only Jesus could survive and experience the full brunt of God's wrath against humanity for the sin that broke our relationship with him. And he endured that on our behalf. He endured the cross so that we might have the confidence of knowing we will receive mercy and find grace whenever we need it. So Jesus is that mighty God. And you think in terms of how Jesus does this on his earthly ministry. We don't really see Jesus as the mighty God in the New Testament until the last book. When he comes riding triumphantly in Revelation 19. But how Jesus is the mighty God before that is emblematic of how we are to respond ourselves. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the one who takes, who lays aside his garment. Well, the, the incongruity of this scene, when you think about it, in the upper room, Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified within hours, and the disciples are arguing among themselves who's the greatest among them. And while they're bickering at the table, you know, reclining, Jesus sort of steps back and stands up, removes his outer garment, puts a towel around himself, gets a basin, and he does the job only a slave, not even a slave was required to do, and he begins to wash their feet. That's the mighty God we serve, who comes to us in the form of a servant because he is a servant, and he is a son. And it is because he fulfills that role that he is the mighty God. And then he's also everlasting father. And the precise meaning of this in Isaiah, this Hebrew word is difficult to translate from Hebrew into English. Probably the, the translation that comes closest to the mark is one who is eternally a father. Because father, again, describes how Jesus deals with us. He treats us the way his father treated him. And I think if there's any of the, the names that are given to this child, to our Savior, perhaps it is father that is one that we, from a human standpoint, may have the most trouble identifying with, especially if we have had not a good relationship with our father or even our mother. But Jesus wants us to understand that Regardless of how our earthly father has treated us, we have a heavenly father who demonstrates his love for us by giving us his son. And that is a kind of father worth knowing. That he would allow his son to bear our punishment so that we might have fellowship with him. That Jesus, as the Son, would so willingly and voluntarily and lovingly obey the Father to endure that punishment so that we might have fellowship with Him because to have fellowship with Him is to have fellowship with the Father. And Jesus would even say at one point, really on the night that He's betrayed, as He's talking to His apostles, and He says, I go to my Father. And Philip says, we don't know where, where you're going, first of all, we don't know where it is, but He wants us to show us the Father. And then Jesus just says, Philip, have you been so long with me? Don't, don't you see? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I and the Father are one. 
And so Jesus acts toward us eternally as a father. <laughs> He'll, there'll never come a point when Jesus will disavow knowing us. I remember as a kid, the greatest sin I could commit was going someplace public with a dirty face. It would drive my mother crazy that I didn't wash my face. If I'd be playing outside in the dirt, my hands were dirty, my face was, was muddy. And if I didn't wash my hands and face and went on public, that was like the greatest offense I could ever commit. And I remember going with her one time to a, dental, to a doctor's visit. With dirty hands and a dirty face. And I remember going up to my mother and asking her for something. And she looked at me and said, who are you? I don't know you. I'm your, I'm, my, I'm your son. I was flabbergasted. I learned my lesson. I washed my hands on my face the next time we went out in public. But that'll never happen to Jesus, to, to us with Jesus. If we are faithful to him, if we love him and we recognize him, there'll never come a time. That is, that's a chilling verse too in Matthew 7 where Jesus at the end of time says, I behold, you know, I don't know who you are. The way to avoid that catastrophe is to draw near to him as a father. This also speaks to us dads of our responsibility to be good fathers, to be loving fathers. As Paul says and warns us not to exasperate our children because our children's image of God as father is going to derive from how we treated them as their father. And so as Christ is merciful and loving and kind to us, that is how we must love our sons and our daughters. Indeed, God does discipline those who he loves and trains them. And so our discipline as fathers must be in that mode as well, with kindness and compassion, with the aim always, always, of having our children conform to the image of Christ as we ourselves as dads work toward being conformed and bend our will to the will of the Father to be conformed in his image. And as I said before, this is probably one of the more difficult names to wrestle with because of potentially not having a good relationship with our parent. But with grace and with time and with patience, I believe the Holy Spirit can help us deal with our past so that it will not define our relationship with Christ. And we may hesitate to bear the yoke that Jesus offers us, but if we are willing to take that yoke, if we're willing to learn from him who is gentle and lowly of heart, he promises that we will find rest for our souls. We will receive as well the faith, the courage, and the mercy to leave the past behind and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. And then lastly, he is Prince of Peace. The Sar Shalom. Wonderful phrase there in Hebrew. Sar, Prince, Shalom, Peace. And that name, that, that word peace speaks directly to the deepest needs of our heart. Because that, that desire whether it's Isaiah 700 years before Jesus or whether it's us today in 2021 and the verge of 2022, we want, we crave peace. And the kind of peace that Isaiah is talking about here in Hebrew is a marvelous word, shalom. 
a state of wholeness, of harmony, of well-being, usually as a result of a restored relationship. <laughs> Shalom, um, when, when our, our son Matthew first learned how to drive, uh, we lived in Canada, and uh, we had a gravel driveway. And I remember Matthew would take the car out at night, you know, to spend time with his friends or go to uh, drive to a hockey game. And then we would wait, and shalom for us was hearing the sound of that car pulling onto the gravel driveway. It's like, he's home. He's safe. And then years later, when he bought his own car, he bought a, a 91 Camaro with a five-liter engine, four-speed. You could hear this thing a quarter mile away. We heard that rumble. It's like, he's coming home. Shalom is like that. Shalom is uh, the feeling a dad has when all of his children are home at Christmas time and everyone's safe. It's, it's shalom is, is knowing that a loved one, even though they die, if they die in Christ, they're going home. Shalom, <laughs> I think shalom is a post-COVID world. <laughs> it's knowing as well that God is not angry at us because Jesus bore the full weight of his anger for us. That's shalom. That's the peace that Jesus offers us. It is the key is shalom. It is the key to knowing real joy and lasting joy because Christ is peace. He is peace between a holy God and unholy us. But it's also knowing that he himself has removed that wall of hostility that separated us from God. That as the Prince of Peace, he is uniquely qualified to establish shalom between God and us. Isaiah 53, 5, speaking of Jesus, the prophet says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us shalom was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. What's interesting is that prophecy is fulfilled, and the apostle is fulfilled in Jesus, and the apostle Paul confirms it when he writes about Jesus' ministry in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, Paul writes this about Jesus. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, meaning Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he restores, does Jesus, a relationship between God and us, and he also restores a relationship between us as human beings, that our unity is not found in our particular identity, whatever that is, but that our identity is found in Christ, so that we are not Jew, Gentile, we are not Caucasian or Korean, we're not black, we are not Latino, male or female, child or adult, but are in Christ one. Because he is our peace. 
So that the peace that we're looking for is not something outside. The cessation of hostilities, even the cessation of a pandemic. The peace that we need is one that comes by virtue of the work of the Spirit in our heart that puts us right with God. And the only one who can do that is the Prince of Peace. It sounds, and he does that by dying for us and then rising from the grave. And it sounds out of place to talk about Christ's death at Christmas. I mentioned that last week. But I also mentioned last week that that Jesus' name is his mission. He came to save us from our sins. And each year at Christmas, I mean, it's the message of the angels to the shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy, peace on earth, and to men on whom God's favor rests. Peace is why Jesus came. Peace to establish between God and us. And that kind of peace will know no end because it is an eternal peace that he has established by virtue of an eternal life. The kingdom that he establishes, the kingdom that he inherits, is not an earthly kingdom. The tyrants, dictators, and autocrats, they establish their rule. They build their kingdoms by violence and oppression as prince of peace. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Jesus establishes his kingdom on the double foundation of justice and righteousness. The kingdom of God, as we have sung about it, is the reign and rule of God. And it increases because it has no geographic boundary. The kingdom of God is found wherever he rules and reigns in the hearts of those that he has redeemed by his blood. And so it it doesn't need a geographic location. What it needs is men and women and children who will follow him and worship him and adore him. Its growth is not determined by the land it occupies, but by the number of hearts that are one to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. There'll be no end of this peace, as I said, because Christ is himself our peace, our peace and he lives forever. This is all marvelous. How do we know this is going to happen? We, we, we celebrate the birth of Christ. How do we know that the, the future that we look forward to in Christ will take place, Isaiah tells us, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His intense devotion to and love for his people will guarantee that what God says he will do, he will do. Christ has given us a foretaste of that. And his zeal motivates God to be unapologetic about the preferential treatment he chose to his children. His zeal guarantees that the child to be born will be a king and he will have a kingdom and he will make us priests in that kingdom. The child is the light of the world. The zeal of the Lord guarantees that the light will shine and it will shine into darkness and it will continue to shine until it ultimately overcomes the darkness. I have um, been reading, as just part of my own uh, spiritual devotional life, uh, you know, books that, that help sort of focus my attention. I've, you know, I've mentioned before I read books, that gather, you know, gleanings from the Puritans. Uh, I also read um, 
a devotional written by uh, Paul David Tripp called New Morning Mercies. And in the, the entry for Christmas Eve, um, Tripp describes, I think, and sums up um, Christ's ministry as wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace. And I'll end with this. Tripp writes, it's on the screen. Under the burden of the shroud of rebellion and sin, the world had become a dark place. In the darkness of immorality, injustice, violence, greed, self-righteousness, thievery, racism, and a host of other ills, the world was desperate for light. Everyone was part of the problem, and everyone suffered from the problem. But no one could solve the problem. God's solution is the only way. He sent the one who is the light to be the light that would <clears throat> light the world by his grace. He came into the darkness so that we could know light and life forever. And here is the Christmas story. Only light can defeat the darkness. And the light has come. You think about that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the light shines. You are the light that shines and will shine forever. We pray, Lord God, that we would live in your light and in your truth. That we would explore even more what it means to know you as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Light of the World, Savior. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.